0: Hello
1: and Shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpack, a division of Open Door Media. Before we get started, if you haven't already, you know the drill. Take this moment and subscribe to this podcast. I promise you will not regret it. On today's episode, we are talking with election integrity advocate Jenny Cohen. So I'm a political science major, and one topic I've studied in-depth in college is democracy in America. Something Jenny is incredibly knowledgeable about. She began her work as a lawyer, but soon realized that this wasn't her project. And so she did something that most people don't have the guts to do. She made a massive career change. Now she is an election integrity advocate who researches, writes about, and informs about the state and sanctity of America's democracy. Yeah, we have some pretty cool guests on the show. So in this episode, we'll talk about her work, yes, and it's fascinating, but I wanted to get into something I think is a bit more important and relevant, not only for me, but for all of us. Most of us, unfortunately, can relate to this idea of imposter syndrome. This idea that in the recesses of our minds, we don't really believe we're capable. This affects everyone, but I think women are often made to feel it even deeper. Jenny's human and has very human feelings, but in this episode, I wanted to hear from her. How does she barrel forward with such confidence, even as she works in such a difficult and oftentimes controversial field? I wanted to ask her about that and a lot more. What's it like to have this massive life change? Why is democracy important enough to change your life for it, especially as a Jewish woman? I am so excited for you guys to hear. Let's do this thing. Jennifer Cohen is an election integrity advocate, but she's also an attorney and a writer whose articles have appeared in the New York Review of Books, Who What Why, TYT Investigates, The Brad Blog, and Salon. Since the 2016 election, she has focused her professional efforts on investigating and exposing our country's insecure computerized elections. She posts daily about election security via her Twitter account, Jenny Cohen, 1 with no E, which has over 180,000 followers. Jenny graduated from UCLA and Hastings College of the Law. She was a law partner at Nielsen Haley and Abbott in Martin County for many years. Jenny, it's so wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello.
0: It's nice to meet you finally.
1: Yeah. It's cool because with the pandemic, we've been able to talk to people a lot more online which is funny because you think that it would decrease accessibility, but I feel like I got to meet you from the Twitter space, and it, it's great to finally have a sort of face-to-face interaction.
0: Yeah, you're right. In many ways, it actually has made it easier to, um, to, get, to get to know people and see them face-to-face.
1: Absolutely. So I want to hear all about your story. Can you start from the beginning and tell us a little bit about where you're from?
0: Sure. I grew up in a town called El Cerrito, which is in the East Bay, San Francisco, East Bay of California. It's right next to Berkeley. I went to UCLA for undergraduate, as you mentioned, and then Hastings College of the Law. And I practiced law for many years, but I do not practice anymore. I stopped about six years ago.
1: So you grew up with a Jewish background. Can you tell us a little bit about that identity growing up?
0: Sure. So both of my parents were Jewish, and and they were both raised Jewish. They would go to temple and everything. And I don't even think they really noticed that they didn't raise me or my brother Jewish. Um, Mm -hmm. I consider myself Jewish. They told me I was Jewish. They considered me Jewish. And I have a brother also. We're both Jewish, but we never went to temple. You know, we even celebrated Christmas. So we had a Christmas tree. We did celebrate Hanukkah too, as well. But um, at a certain point, even that went away. So it's sort of, an it has always actually been a very complicated question for me to answer, when people ask me if I'm Jewish, I, I sometimes have hesitated in the past, but I finally came around to, yes, I'm Jewish. <laughs> so, um, And there were not many Jews, actually, where I grew up either. So there were maybe two or three families, um, mm-hmm. but I was friends with them. And when I went to UCLA for the first time, I was around a lot more Jews, and I did notice that I have some sort of an affinity. I don't know if it's something indirect in our upbringing or sense of humor or personality, but there is an automatic kind of affinity that I've noticed with many people who, who were raised Jewish.
1: Absolutely. And I'm so excited to have your perspective on the podcast today. I mean, coming from my own background, I was raised like, what well, I think we've called a lot of times on the show, a high holiday Jew, mm-hmm. where we go to synagogue and after a certain point, it became more of a cultural identity. And I think a lot of the time being in this space, it's assumed that I like, come from a more religious background and I don't. Um, and I think that it's important that we get the complexity of the American Jewish experience on this show. So I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, I want to, we're going to come back to the complex conversation around Jewish identity, but I want our listeners to get an understanding of your career. So you are a really incredible journalist and you have a really great career in election integrity. What brought you to this space?
0: The 2016 election and concern about the election immediately after that, the 2018 election is what brought me to this space. And I was not initially drawn to it, interested in it, any of that. I was on Twitter a lot because I was not practicing law anymore. I had quit for a multitude of reasons, but I really no longer liked practicing law at all. I had two young boys and my husband had a new job um, at a private law firm, so I could quit and my father was sick. And so I was spending a lot of time sort of following the news early on in the Trump administration and the resistance was on Twitter And I was also kind of social media shy, so I was really mostly using my Twitter account just to follow what other people were writing. I didn't know much about the the Russian mafia and the whole Russia connection, and I didn't think I had much to add there, so I wasn't. And then somebody asked if anyone had time to research the – I think it was the voting machine audit laws – by state because there was the recount that was happening. Jill Stein had sought a recount. And so I thought I I could contribute somehow that way because I knew I was good at research. And so I offered to do it. And then what happened was very quickly, um, I saw a disconnect between what public officials had told the public about the security of that election and what actual election security experts were saying. And I was horrified and it really I didn't even mean to become an election integrity advocate. I actually felt really compelled and it was really the first time in my life that I had that kind of feeling where I had—I knew something that most people didn't know and I felt like it was really urgent to try to sound the alarm.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because a lot of the women that we've spoken to on the show so far have talked about getting involved with election integrity in some way, shape, or form, which I think is something that isn't uh, an intuitive thing to get involved with, but I, I wonder and this is the biggest question for you, in recent years we've seen this super hyper-polarization in American politics and it's given rise to extremism and radicalism in the form of racism and anti-Semitism. Is that a piece of what inspired you to get involved in this space or is that just coincidental?
0: Um, In a sense I think, well I think my own um, Judy, B. Coming from a Jewish background, there is sort of a sense of responsibility, uh, you know, to your ancestors and to Jew- Jews overall to not take for granted your democracy, and it never it never had to be activated really before. And I think that when Trump came into power, I was not initially among those who was pr- particularly hair on fire worried, but I quickly became hair on fire worried um, because when I heard the uh, well, when he started targeting, I think, individuals on social media who then would get death threats, and when he began attacking the press as the enemy of the people, I had not had probably the best education in terms of what to look for with authoritarian regimes. That was almost like the cartoon version of it, but I, I recognized it immediately, and that absolutely propelled me, and then when I saw that he had won in an election where unknown to most people, we don't really know if he really won that election. I'm not saying he didn't, um, that there was cheating with the voting machines. We'd never really looked to find out. And yes, there could have been cheating. That is what propelled me. And when I began investigating previous um, elections that had been kind of dodgy in the United States, there, it was an obvious pattern of, the religious right, which is really a minority in the United States, coming to power, really being the beneficiary of quite a few anomalous, poll-defying, and otherwise suspicious election results, including the 2000 presidential election and the 2004 presidential election. Those were both won by George Bush, and his administration really did a lot to give the religious right sort of undue influence, I think, over our government
1: Part of what you mentioned in that response was the commitment that you feel, especially now looking back, um, toward your ancestors in preserving democracy. What value do you see in preserving democracy? Why do you feel that democracy is an important thing to preserve as a Jewish person?
0: Um, I don't know if this is the best analogy, but mm-hmm. you, you don't want a society where the most vulnerable among us are can have targets on their heads and there's nothing to be done about it and that is why I think that democracy is so important so that um yeah people who are vulnerable whether it's because they're they tend to be the targets of discrimination or because they have disabilities or or whatever it is those people need to be protected and certainly my ancestors fell into that category and to an extent maybe I do as well um I was raised in a time where there really, well, maybe there was a lot of anti-Semitism. My parents always told me it was there. I didn't see it. And maybe that was part of going to a school where they were so, well, I don't know. You, even at UCLA, I really didn't see it. So I don't know. Maybe I was oblivious to it. It really wasn't much on my radar. But I certainly knew that that my ancestors were, had, were victims of it.
1: Absolutely. And that story that you're telling about kind of growing up not seeing it, I think is something that a lot of people in the generation before me experienced, or even 10 years ago experienced, the experience of even going to college, like you say, is so different now than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. Do you think that part of that has to do with like uh, a hyper-politicized, hyper-polarized environment creating a hostile place for any group that's vulnerable?
0: Um, I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. I think it has a lot, the anti-Semitism, um, and I'm you're much more of an expert on this than I am, by the way, I do want to put that out there. I, I really, really don't want to stick my foot in my mouth on this because it is not my area of expertise, but I do feel that Netanyahu is largely responsible for some of the anti-Semitism that we're seeing. And, you know, maybe I'm my perceptions are wrong about some of this stuff, but the fact that he, he and Trump appeared to get along, you know, like gangbusters... Um, I don't think has helped if we're talking about anti-Semitism from the left, although maybe there has always been an anti-sem- anti-Semitic strain from the left. But I think that sort of aligning with Trump and maybe to an extent with Putin um, and that whole spyware thing, you know, I don't know how many people know about the Israeli government sort of authorizing the use of the, N- the, use of the NSO Pegasus spyware, um, but... To me, that is something that was inexcusable that his administration um, appears to have authorized, and you know, God help us for what that has unleashed. And I think that there is a has been a reaction to that, and you know, Kushner, Jared Kushner, being so close with the with Netanyahu's family, and um, I and I think that that may be part of what's happening, because a lot of the religious extremists on the right some of them are going to be anti-semitic certainly but some of them really embraced netanyahu and they see this is sort of my another maybe cartoon um vision of it but you know they want the end times and israel is is um necessary to achieve that that's my understanding to achieve the end times i don't know i'd be i'd really be curious to get your perspective on it too actually
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting topic that comes up a lot in my perspective on college campuses because there are spaces that are having these conversations. And I think that it's strange almost because the mainstream Jewish view of Zionism or Jewish view of Israel in general is oftentimes kind of pushed to the side. And the view of others, because there are so few Jews in the world, is kind of uplifted before that. So a lot of time we talk about Zionism for lots of Jewish people, all that means is that Israel should exist. But perhaps for someone who's evangelical it means something different, or perhaps for some Jews, it means that Israel should be farther to the right, where some Jews means Israel should be farther to the left. But it's a, a term that's, I guess, kind of vague. And because of that, people use it to their best political gains, I guess, especially on a campus setting. Um, and then you see this kind of, politicization of Jewish safety such that extremism and anti-Semitism are really coming to a head. And then you see things like January 6th attack on the Capitol where there were Nazi flags flying. And then you see on the left, on college campuses, lots of Jewish students um, being ostracized from social spaces where they feel most at home um, under the guise of their Zionism. And that's something that I've personally experienced quite a bit. So I think it's a really complicated landscape and it's hard for Jewish students who are kind of torn politically or torn between their Jewish identity and their political identities, I think is a big piece of the, the challenge for Jewish students now. But I think the best solution, I mean, at least on a Jewish level, is for us to operate under our own definition of these terms and not let the conflation of that with other beliefs get in the way of our own narrative. And, yeah. And at least on a, on a community level and then taking it from there.
0: It must be really incredibly difficult to be facing that while you're in college. Um, you know, one thing that has really impressed me about you is that you seem to have, I know this is an interview of me, but I did wanna say this. You seem to have sort of found your passion at a young age in college. And I'm actually really um, envious of that because I never had that. I mean, really truly career wise, the first time I had it was with um, election integrity. And that's my 50s, I I'm in my 50s. So it took me that long. and. Um, You know, I had an entire career that I was not passionate about, and that's really unfortunate, and I think it's the world is, you're going to be one to watch, I think, um, because as I discovered myself, um, having a passion for an issue can take you very far in a very short amount of time. I mean, I just, it is remarkable to me that, so I started with the election integrity, um, writing about it, and trying to sound the alarm several years ago. And my husband actually said to me, nobody's going to listen to you, which you you should really never tell a woman that no one's going to listen to her. And I sort of knew that I knew that people would listen to me. I just knew it. I couldn't not do it. It was the strangest thing. I couldn't not do it. And I'd never had that. It wasn't even really a choice. Um, I couldn't not advocate.
1: And it's interesting. I mean, a lot of what you've accomplished seems to be inspired by a particular event. And it seems like there are other women, like you're explaining, who had similar experiences, who saw this injustice. And like you mentioned in the story with your husband, like, we, we're we not going to be told to be silent anymore. Um, and that's a huge shift that, I mean, I grew up, I grew up on Long Island, New York. I grew up in a time when I wasn't even conscious of the fact that there was a gender difference in the workforce or anything until I got to college. And then I was like, oh, wait, hold on. Things are different than I thought that they were. Um So has that kind of power of this moment where women are no longer letting society tell us that we can't do something, that kind of inspirational momentum of the moment, has that inspired you to continue using your voice even when you were told that this story wasn't going to be newsworthy?
0: Um, I don't know. I think honestly, as much as sometimes I have well for years I sort of lamented becoming an attorney it didn't fit and all this st- with my personality and um you know I practiced for 23 years of which I'd say about 7 I truly enjoyed and then some of it I was kind of neutral and then some of it I really wasn't enjoying it anymore um but I do think that that is partly though I, it gave me the confidence to be much more certain in my voice than I absolutely it did than I otherwise would have been because I have as a lawyer, you go up against some, sometimes some really mean people, other lawyers who, and especially when I was a young woman lawyer, you know, who are older and scarier and, and um, intimidating. If you practice long enough, you kind of learn that even sometimes even people with really um, sparkling reputations are wrong about, you know, with, with really sort of celebrated careers even in law, for example, can be wrong. Or they can miss the big picture, the picture, you know, or they're not creative enough with their application of the law to situations. Some of the people who've really thrived in their careers um, are not flexible enough or creative enough to rise to an unprecedented moment in our history, have not been. They're catching up, though, I think, some of them.
1: I mean, if you want to talk about flexibility, you made this giant career change in your life. And it was after having a seven-year career in law and that twenty-three. Of- <laughs> Twenty three. Twenty-three. I'm sorry. After a twenty-three-year career in law, that's even more, I think, rare and brave and really tells how much this is a passion for you. Um have so you you talked a lot about the experiences you faced as a young female lawyer going against these big personalities and then realizing yourself where your passions were. How would you compare that growth from the beginning of your career to now? What were those lessons that you learned throughout the career that really gave you the strength to make this career move when you knew it was important enough to make it?
0: Well, first of all, I should say, I don't know if I'd even say what I'm doing is a career. It's almost like a full-time hobby or just passion because it, for the, I don't make any money at it. I mean, other than my articles, which, believe me, do not pay <laughs> No offense to the people who published them, I, I'm grateful and all, but they don't they don't pay. And part of that is my fault. I've had lots of people offer money, ask how they can donate to me, and I had been really hesitant because I didn't need the money, which is how I was able to stop practicing law in the first place. And I didn't want, you know, people want to discredit you in this area. And I'm, all, I'm speaking most of the pre-Trump era. Where people wanted to call would have wanted to call me a grifter and say that I'm trying to you know as if advocating for hand marked paper ballots you know pen and paper is going to make me rich, but they would have wanted me to be to try to monetize it, and I was just really hesitant to um, give any ammunition to anyone because I was sort of I'm, I did insurance coverage and in appellate law, I didn't even do election law, so I didn't want to give them anything to discredit me, really, um, and I'm still trying to figure out. I think I, I probably do need to form a nonprofit or something, but that's even tricky too because, as I understand it, most 501c3s are supposed to be nonpartisan, which is so ridiculous because I think most people who have 501c3s are incredibly partisan. But I don't yeah. pretend to be nonpartisan. I'm very much a Democrat, although I have my disappointments with Democrats as well, especially on the issue of election integrity. They have not been as strong as they should have been, as they should be now. Um, so it, was it brave? Um, it wasn't actually brave, I don't think, because I had already left law. I think I was, I was lucky that I was able to leave law, that I have a husband who is a lawyer. He's a securities lawyer, and unlike me, it fit very well with his personality. He really thrives on it. He loves it. You know, he would probably do it for no money. Um, and so I, w- I was actually able to able to do that, but there are, the people who do election integrity work, I'm on an email list, I actually don't know how many people are on it, you hear from about 50 probably on the email list, have been doing election integrity work since around 2002 to 2004 is when most of them kind of got activated, and it's a very underfunded and underappreciated area, and it's, um, it is all driven by passion more than bravery
1: even in being driven by passion, Mm -hmm. that's a brave thing to be. Like, I think that we can't understate how important that kind of work is. And that's something that I very much understand, like kind of going on a passion project and running with it. Right. Um, And it's something I respect tremendously. Um, And one thing I'm wondering is you've made this tremendous impact in your field um, because of your background and your um, understanding of research. I think it's really worthy of so much respect how – when you first went into this field, you made sure to do it in a way that would be as upfront as possible. You continue to even want to do it independently because this upfront as possible. You just have this commitment to keeping things as
0: clean. <laughs> yeah,
1: As clean and keeping your message as powerful as you can, even if it's harder for you individually. And I think that's a really selfless and incredible thing. So just so much respect to you for that um, you. and for doing really incredible work. And I really have loved having you on this podcast because I think a lot of the time, and I said this a bit in the beginning, I think a lot of the time we think of Jewish identity as one thing, and that depends on where you are. So if you're a secular Jew, you think of Jewish identity as just secular. If you're a religious Jew, you think of Jewish identity as just religious. Um, On this podcast, we want to have all of it. And for some people, that connection to Judaism is studying Torah. And for some people, that connection to Judaism is preserving democracy because that's how they feel to best keep a safe country for their children in the future. And I want us to have all of those stories in the show because this show is meant to be an archive of every piece of Jewish experience and the incredible things that women are doing in this space. So thank you. Um, And that really brings us to our last question, which is, you know, keeping in mind that we, we want this show to be a way for young people, but specifically young Jewish women to have access to mentors in the field that they might never be able to meet. So there might be uh, people listening to this who have never heard of election integrity and are hearing you speak about it and are inspired by your story or who are secular and feel like they can't own their Jewish identity and hear how you own yours and want to be like that and own it the same way that you do. What advice would you give for young people listening to the show about navigating the world through your experience? Um, and what, what would you want them to take away from this conversation?
0: Well, I have two sons um, they are 13 and 14 and what I try to tell them is to try as many things as possible so that they find their passion and I mean ideally it would be a passion that makes the world better hopefully it's not I think you can make the world better in many ways you definitely don't want to make it worse but you can make it better through entertainment also entertainment is an important part of life um mm-hmm. I'm thinking about video games because both of them, my boys love video games. But, um, you know, I do think it's really important to find your passion, and that requires trying lots of things. And I think that when I was your age, I, I did not try enough things. For example, I didn't try journalism. For God's sakes, I should have been a journalist from the beginning. It seems really obvious. It honestly never occurred to me. And, um, and don't play it safe with your studies either because I think that came into it. I think college is very different now, but when I went to UCLA, um, there is concern that taking the harder classes it damages your GPA a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and it was easy, it's easier to take easier classes and get the A's. And that comes with a sacrifice that I don't think I would do again. I didn't always do that, by the way. But certainly there was some of that toward the end, especially of college. For sure. And, um, yeah, I would just say to try lots of things and find your passion. Or passions, mm-hmm. and they can change, too.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Jenny. It's been so wonderful speaking to you. Thank you for sharing all that you have with us today and for taking the time to speak with us.
0: Yes, well, I I was really honored to be on your podcast and I do think that you are definitely someone to keep an eye on and you're going to do, you are doing great things and I think you're going to continue doing great things. So I'm very impressed.
1: I'm so honored that we had Jenny on the podcast today. You know, when I first reached out to Jenny about coming on the show, She was worried she didn't have enough of a background in Jewish education to speak to the Jewish experience. Plainly, she was worried that she wasn't Jewish enough. And honestly, that's a feeling that I often really relate to. I didn't grow up as connected to Judaism as I am now. If you would have told me two years ago that I would be in this Jewish space, running a Jewish nonprofit, recording a Jewish podcast, minoring in Jewish studies, I'd never believe you. I didn't have that connection to my Judaism. I didn't know this would be the path my life would take me, but I was still just as Jewish back then as I am now, even though my connection to Judaism has changed dramatically. I became an advocate because of what I was exposed to on social media, really. Folks on Twitter were speaking about Judaism in ways I'd never seen before. They were sharing Jewish articles from Jewish newspapers, listening to Jewish songs sung by Jewish artists, and I was moved to my core. There was this whole community, this whole world that I could go out and reach, and I knew I just had to grab it. Yes, just like Jenny, just like probably many of you, when it came to Judaism, I felt like the poster child for imposter syndrome. But it's something I've really worked through. Just like Jenny, I know that my experiences with Judaism deserve to be heard, just like all of yours do. Because there's really no such thing as being Jewish enough. Nice Jewish Girls is a podcast about sharing and celebrating the stories of Jewish women who are doing incredible. To do that, we have to tell the story of every Jewish woman, secular, religious, or anything in between. Back in May, Jenny and I were connected on Twitter on a thread that I had written in the wake of the Israel-Gaza conflict. Two women from different generations, different places, different backgrounds, connected by our Judaism in ways that we never expected in large part because Judaism is more accessible than ever. And isn't that so powerful? That after centuries of exile and diaspora, Jews find ways to connect in spite of all of the space that separates us. To fully understand the complexity of Judaism, we need to be open to the complexity of it. It's then that the real competition can happen. And this, my friends, is where we leave with today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other Nice Jewish Girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcast at jewishunpacked.com and join us next week when we'll be speaking with pop culture commentator and entertainment writer Sophie Ross. Nice Jewish Girls, the production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Ripke Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassi one more time if you haven't subscribed to this pod yet what are you waiting for go do that now and while you're at it rate and review the show and of course follow unpacked at all of the social media places like tiktok instagram facebook youtube and twitter just look for at unpacked. talk to you later ladies